we'll be in Proverbs 1 this morning, uh, focusing on the first seven verses, but actually we'll end up kind of covering the whole chapter uh, just to give you something to look forward to. Uh, but we're uh, really just focusing in on essentially the two paths that Proverbs uh, explains very clearly, the wise path and the foolish path. And as Kenny kind of mentioned later on, we'll, we'll kind of work through maybe specific topics within Proverbs where those two paths and ways that they kind of manifest themselves. Um, but again, this morning, we're really just focusing on essentially where the wisdom path starts and why it's important. Uh, so we'll kind of look work through this, but sort of, I guess, by way of introduction, uh, there's a lot of famous, uh, successful and poets. I don't know if any of you are into poetry. I, I'm not going to claim to be like a pro at it, but there's certain kind of poetry that I enjoy. Um, one of the guys that I've read some of and a lot of people enjoy is Robert Frost. You might have heard of him. Uh, he is considered one of the greatest poets that America has ever produced. Now, although Frost has written a lot of um, really popular works or well-known ones, there's actually one poem in particular that is remembered and actually quoted by many people even still today, and it's the one, you might have heard of it, The Road Not Taken. Now, these are just three lines of, it's actually a pretty short poem, um, but these are the three lines that most people have heard or quoted. Uh, it's two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Now, this poem was actually written by Frost over a hundred years ago, but it's interesting how it's been used basically to tout sort of this like individualism and like blazing new trails, like take the road less traveled, whoops, you know, it's sort of this, it's quoted to sort of justify this blazing new trails. What's really interesting, though, is if you uh, actually study the poem, um, and actually you can even look at what Robert Frost himself wrote about it, uh, we actually find that his message is very different than the one that we like to assume. In fact, The Road Not Taken has been called America's most widely misread literary work. The poem is not about the road less taken, but the title of the poem itself hints at the poem's real message. It is The Road Not Taken taken, at which the man in the poem is reflecting on wishing that he had taken. Throughout this short poem, and you can read it, I won't read it for time, but if you read it, Frost hints subtly that there was ultimately no clear difference between the two roads. And upon further analyzation, we find that these differences, even the ones mentioned in the poem, he actually clarifies that they were fabricated after the fact to justify the choice that he did make. So in this poem, the man comes to a fork in the road and from his perspective has no clear right or wrong, wise or foolish path in front of him. So he's thinking these paths are, a, are basically identical. The man makes a decision on a whim without fully processing his options and only later you find out he actually made the wrong choice. And actually the lines before those three famous lines hint at this man looking back, sighing with regret that the choice he did make, he find out, you know, he found out down that road that it was the wrong one. So by the end of the poem, the lines actually quoted by most people, you actually find a man not boasting of blazing a new trail, but a man finding himself too far down the wrong path, filled with regret upon realizing that he had made the wrong choice, but is now at the point that he can do absolutely nothing about it. Now, I say all of that, and you might think, what in the world does that have to do with Proverbs? 
Too often as Christians, we fall into a very lazy mindset in our decision-making or even in properly and biblically analyzing what's really going on in our hearts and minds. We make choices thinking very little of their eternal impacts, whether on us or even on others, and we become content to just do what we've always done, assuming that God will be happy with our attempts, albeit lazy and lethargic ones, to honor Him and to glorify Him in sort of the choices that we make. Now, Proverbs is extremely helpful with this, and really for all of us, simply because it lays out these two very clear, obviously different paths, foolishness and wisdom. But it doesn't just lay the decision in front of us, leaving to chance which one we'll take. Although all of Scripture is going to do this in some form or fashion, Proverbs uniquely explains the path of wisdom and how to biblically walk it. But it also warns of what foolishness is and also what it says and how it tricks and entices us to our own destruction. So, unlike the regret-filled man in Frost's poem, as believers, we're actually able to study a book like Proverbs and walk away with a very clear vision for both paths and a means of diagnosing which one we're actually on. In addition to this, we're also given the hope of how to course correct if we do in fact find that foolishness is, and I put it this way, if it's furnishing an apartment in our hearts or our minds. So the introduction leads us to basically some important questions. So if you're a note taker, um, the format we're working through is basically just asking and answering questions about Proverbs. So we'll say, what is the book of Proverbs? Um, What is the book of Proverbs for and who is it for? How do I develop biblical wisdom? And ultimately, why should I care if I am possibly walking foolishly? So the first question, a really simple, straightforward one, what is the book of Proverbs? And kind of given a very simple explanation in verse 1. So Proverbs 1, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Uh, So actually, in the Hebrew Bible, the title of it is the Proverbs of Solomon. And this is a book that was put together by Solomon and is both wisdom that God inspired him to write, um, but it's also other things that God gave inspiration and direction in making a part of this book as well. If you study Solomon's life, just sort of a very brief summary uh, overview, Second Chronicles, remember that God goes to Solomon and basically gives him a blank check and says, hey, you're about to be king, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And of course, wisdom asks for, or I'm sorry, Solomon, uh, because he's the most wise, just call him wisdom. Uh, Solomon asks for wisdom and actually skill in knowing how to live and rule as king. Now, of course, God honors him for this humble request. He's given the gift uh, of this unique skill wisdom, intelligence, and insight that no one in human history had ever had. Uh, And of course, that's only outside of Jesus Christ because Jesus is God, so he would have been significantly wiser than Solomon to say the least. But other than Christ, Solomon would have been, quote unquote, the wisest man to ever live. So for the first 20 years of Solomon's reign, Solomon uses this wisdom correctly. And I just note that because it's important. It's actually during that first part of his reign that he writes and sort of puts together the, the book of Proverbs. Now, the second half of his reign, of course, that's where he chooses to chase the things of the world using that wisdom uh, selfishly. And actually what you find in Ecclesiastes is sort of this negative wisdom opposite to Proverbs. I say generally positive wisdom, um, but you have a very contrast between those two two books and just see that Proverbs was actually the first part and Ecclesiastes he writes in the second part. So Proverbs is not, and this is an important distinction, okay? Proverbs 
is not a book of Jewish proverbial uh, statements. That's not what it is. Remember that all scripture is given by God, and that is the detail that distinguishes Proverbs from every other cultural proverb out there that's come out of human society. So this isn't Jewish proverbial statements. This is God's inspired wisdom given to mankind through Solomon. Proverbs is not significant because Solomon wrote it. It's significant because it is God-inspired truths that are given in a rubber-meets-the-road structure. And this leads us kind of to our next important question regarding this book. What is Proverbs for? What's the purpose? And who is Proverbs for? And we kind of get this answer in verses 2 through 6. So he says, "...to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding." to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment, and equity, to give subtility to the simple, to get to the young man knowledge and understanding, I'm sorry, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels, to understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. So looking at this first kind of question, what is Proverbs for? And you find in verse 2, three really critical key words. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a, not really a warning, but just so you know where we're going. We're really just going to focus on some key words in verses kind of 2 through 5. Um, so it is a lot of one word and what does it mean? But it's really important. Sometimes we read words, we're like, oh, wisdom, knowledge, I know what that means. But it's fascinating when you get into the Hebrew, the depth of just one word in English where it's like, how to properly explain this word will take a paragraph, and in Hebrew they could just give a word or two. Um, so we're going to dive into a lot of these key words, but it's going to help sort of uh, clarify the direction that we're going in. So the three key words in verse 2 are wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Now wisdom is really interesting. It actually is connected to our idea of, of skill. So just as an example, you have someone who is uh, who's like a gifted, they, like wood, wood, woodcraft or woodsman or whatever. They can work with wood really well. So if someone is a, a, a good woodworker, we'd say they're skilled, they're a skilled woodworker. In Hebrew, it's this idea of wise. This person has skill that produces something. So in the Hebrew, you're literally saying that someone is a wise woodworker because they have knowledge that produces or influences what they do. So wisdom in Hebrew is not just, I have life experience. Experience. Wisdom is I know something and that knowledge influences what I do. So it's skill, it's practice of something. Then you have instruction, which is just tied to the, our idea of, I say in English, like self-discipline. It refers actually though to moral discipline, the moral discipline of an individual. So someone who's able to make a, a clear distinction between right and wrong. And the assumption is if you're, a, if you're an instruction-like person that you're consistently making the right or ethical decision. And then you have understanding, which actually implies mental fortitude or mental discipline. This is someone who is able to stay focused or on task processing information within a situation, and then correctly discerning the proper path or action that's needed. Now, then you jump to verse 3, and you have four more key words, wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. Now, it's important here because you look at wisdom, and you're like, oh, wisdom, 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 two, three, wisdom, wisdom, this is wisdom book. But in Hebrew, it's actually a completely different word of, for wisdom in verse 3 than it is in verse 2. So that wisdom was, you know, you talk about skill, 
But this one actually has two parts to it or two main ideas. The first one is discrete counsel, and it's the idea of like an internal conversation that leads to right choices. So for instance, you read like 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul talks about, I keep my body under subjection and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And it's the idea of almost like fighting your flesh. But this word is like a conversation where you're like, no flesh, you're wrong, we're not going to do that. Like it's kind of a funny image because... I don't know. I do that a lot. Maybe that's why people don't talk to me at Walmart. Uh, like, no. Uh, but it's like this internal conversation, but it actually, that, that leads to the right choice, but it actually has a very specific context to it. So it's this internal conversation that leads to right choices, but the context is when you're tempted to do what's wrong to get a right result. So it's fighting sin when you're tempted to just say, like the ends justifies the means kind of thing. Um, now, just to, trying to illustrate this a little bit, um, growing up, my, my dad, I, I played baseball, I loved baseball, enjoyed it until I got to be in like middle school and I realized I wasn't very good, so I switched to soccer. Um, but I, I really loved baseball when I was a kid, um, whether it was playing it, watching it, or going to games with my dad. And if some of you might remember, uh, in 1998, there was a season where Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were trying, there was like this competition of who can hit the, it's like the most home runs in a single season. Uh, and I actually remember the night that Mark McGuire broke the record. My dad, it was like later in the evening, he like woke me up, ran me downstairs. And I remember like watching the TV when he broke the record. And it's, ah, you know, all this, ah, you know, he's crazy. Uh, but then, of course, if you know anything about baseball, kind of in this era, uh, a few years later, it comes out that all these guys were on steroids. And I use that as just an example because ultimately, and I'm not justifying it, but ultimately they wanted something good, right? They wanted this Hall of Fame career. They wanted to break records. They wanted to be remembered. They wanted something quote unquote good, but they were, they were basically tempted to do something wrong to get a right result. And that, in a way, is an image where sometimes we justify what we do with a right motive. It's, ah, I know it probably wasn't ideal, but look at the, res the, the results good, right? And the idea here is if you're a wise person, you're someone who is not going to be tempted to take like the dirty way to get the right result. You're not going to take the shortcuts and cut corners. You're going to do what's right and fight, actually fight temptation. So that's that word for wisdom. It's, it's that doing what's right because it's right, not because you get something out of it or justifying it with whatever the case may be. Then you have justice, and this implies that your decisions or your, uh, the choices that you make are fair and clear. So it's really interesting because it does have the idea of being very decisive. Um, so you're a decisive person, but your decision-making is both fair and clear within that decisiveness. Now, um, I, it's really nice when an illustration for something just falls in your lap. And I know that uh, Jen and Aniston, and then I know Kelvin and Landon will appreciate this. Um, but we're at camp this week, and they have, you know, this, like, cleaning competition where you get points for how clean your cabin is. And then how many points you get, you, if, you know, you're the highest ranked points, you get to get lunch first. And if you have the lowest points, you eat lunch last. Uh, so the first two days, our cabins didn't do well. Uh, and you're kind of like, well, I mean... We actually cleaned pretty hard. I know they probably cleaned harder than we did, but we tried. We were like, let's get lunch, like, you know, first or second. Uh, and the second day, we somehow both ended up with zero points. And we're like, okay, what in the world is going on? Like, we, we cleaned. And they were like, oh, just follow the check sheet, and you'll know what to clean. And we're like, what check sheet? <laughs> so uh, we did better. But this is, I say, when you talk about justice, and really this is a selfish illustration because I just wanted to prove biblically they were wrong. Uh, 
we, they, they were decisive, right? We have a standard for cleaning, and you will get points for these standards. They were decisive. They were, you could say, fair to some extent, but they weren't clear. So there's this idea of justice is not just making a decision, but it's a decision that is there's no obscurity. There's a clear path forward, quote-unquote. So this idea of justice, you talk about a just decision, it's decisive, it's clear, it's fair, it's based on, you, say, you could say, fact. So a wise person is decisive, but they are fair and clear, they're just in their decision making, which actually connects to the next key word, which is judgment. So you have wisdom, justice, and judgment, and again, our image here is, it is of a judge coming to a verdict, right? He's heard the trial, he's, he's gotten all the facts, and he makes a judgment call, he makes a verdict that is clear, which is based on, say, reality. So it's a conclusion or verdict that, people, that a wise person comes to are going to be accurate based on what actually unfolded. So when making a judgment call, your conclusions are accurate because they're based on facts. Uh, now, the easiest illustration of this, or maybe the most frustrating one, is like an umpire or a referee that makes a bad call. Well, why is that frustrating? Because if he makes a bad call and you watch video replay and you're like, ah, that's not what happened, you're right. You, you can prove it didn't happen. And so it's frustrating because you're like, that wasn't a good judgment call because it wasn't based on what actually happened. Now, I say that's the easy one, um, but I had to write, and I'm just saying this is an illustration for me. Uh, I dove into this word because this is actually something that I, I struggle with personally. Um, we like to pick on refs, but we have to realize that there is application into real life. A wise man does not speculate about what he does not know. So a wise person will make a judgment call based on truth and reality and refuses to come to a, a conclusion or a verdict solely based on intuition or speculation. So a wise person makes a judgment call based on reality and not just intuition. And I do say it doesn't mean that intuition doesn't have its place because you do have to have wisdom and you talk about discernment and seeing how something's going to play out. But this idea here when you're getting into it is that ultimately the end of the road of sort of speculation is actually anxiety. And I wrote this out. I was like, this is 100. This word's for me because I struggle with that. I take a little bit of information, try to extrapolate it out, and I speculate. And then I just end up really stressed out about like something that's, it's, I really want to barbecue today. Is it going to rain? It's going to rain. It's probably going to rain. Now, what are we going to do for, and like, I just, I do that. And then I'm just like, ah, you know, um, but a wise person doesn't do that. So um, this idea of judgment is you come to a conclusion, you come to a verdict, but it's based on facts. It's actually based on what is there. And then of course you have equity, which this is a very broad word, but a really powerful one as well, because it has the idea of, it implies maintaining your morals and ethics regardless of the situation. So the image would be of, you know how you like, or at least you're supposed to, uh, you keep your car maintained, you keep it up to inspection. If you, you keep it healthy, why? Because if something happens and I need to get in my car and go, I want it to work. So you maintain the health of your vehicle. So regardless of the situation, you can pop in and go. So when you talk about that and put it in your ethics and your morals, you're maintaining moral integrity so that whatever situation comes up, you maintain moral or ethical integrity. So verse three, you have wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. This section makes, and this is the important connection here, 
Uh, this section makes moral and, and ethical connections to what you know and discern. So every choice is by nature either wise or foolish. You're either going to please your flesh or you're seeking to please God by doing what's wise. No decision is neutral if you're seeing life correctly. So it assumes that you can discern what is wise or what is foolish, and then the resulting action, choice, or attitude is right or godly. And that's the important connection. Because a lot of times we like to look at wisdom and think, well, if you have experience, you have wisdom. That's not necessarily true. Wisdom biblically actually has a, you know, we would say a moral or ethical note to it. So the point here is that this critical transition, being a wise person is directly linked to being a godly person. Or you could borrow some New Testament language. The only wise path is the path of seeking to be like Christ. And anything else is foolishness. And that's sort of the direction that Proverbs is starting to move you towards. The wise person is by default a godly, righteous person. John MacArthur said this, he said, Proverbs contains a gold mine of biblical theology by reflecting themes and principles of scripture into practical righteousness by addressing the ethics of our choices. It calls into question how we think, how we live, and even how we manage our daily lives in light of God's divine truth. Proverbs calls us to live as our creator intended from the very beginning, wisely and humbly submitted to accurately bearing God's image in everyday life. So Proverbs builds a sturdy bridge between correct theology and godly living. So wisdom is not just knowing all the right answers or having a lot of quote-unquote life experience. Wisdom, as shown in Proverbs, is the skill of living a godly life as God intends and commands for his children. Now, just to give you an illustration of this, and even this is an Old Testament principle, um, if you, you look at the law of Moses, and actually Moses says this in Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that ye should do them. So I've given them to you and now do them. He says, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this is a great nation, or surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So in order to be wise, you must know and do what God has commanded, period. Wisdom is being skilled in knowing and discerning what is right and then consistently doing it. So what is Proverbs for? Proverbs helps us clearly discern between what is wise and what is foolish so that we can make wise, godly decisions. So that's what Proverbs is for. Now the question becomes, who needs this information, right? Who, who is this for? And that's where you get into verse 4, right? He says, to give subtility to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. So simple and young, uh, again, the image here is either of a young person in age 
or young in maturity. So you could say kids and teens slash, or like just someone who's young in their faith or young believers. Uh, Subtility or prudence to the simple. Uh, It actually, the word is proper movement through varying situations. So you kind of maybe have the idea of like a snake moving through rocks, but I hate snakes, so I had to think of another illustration. Um, uh, If you think of like soccer, if you've ever watched a soccer game where you have a guy who's trying to make a run at goal, and what does he do? He sees a defender, he moves, he does all his little fancy schmooka wakos, whatever, he does all this stuff. So he gets around, he sees the, the, the varying situations, he works his way around them, he looks up, where's the goalie? He's on the right side, I'm shooting to the left side. So he's, he's working through varying decisions, and he's making decisions through that that lead to a right result. So you talk about subtility, proper movement through varying situations. It's seeing something unfold and then making decisions to come out successfully or wise. So a simple-minded person is someone who can grow in their thinking and understanding, and if he's going to have subtility, wisdom helps him kind of be able to deal with varying situations to get the right result, which would be wisdom. Then you have knowledge and discretion to the young. Knowledge actually equates to our idea of experience. So this is where you get the experience of being able to do wisdom or do what's wise. And discretion actually implies, and this is an important connection as well, it implies avoiding corruption or contamination. So you're gaining experience in avoiding corruption. Now, this is important because having biblical wisdom is sufficient in understanding the wickedness of this world and the importance of avoiding and being contaminated or being deceived by it. I'm going to break this down one more level because we hear that and we're like, oh, that sounds good. Um, This is usually how you hear it. Um, And just a, a point of application of this definition, neither you nor your kids need to experience the real world to know that it is wicked and dangerous. God gives wisdom to deal with the world, to deal with our flesh. So if you trust God, then you'll trust what he says about sin, flesh, and the world. And that wisdom gives you the experience that you need to make right and godly choices. So you look at verse 4, and you're like, okay, got it. So Proverbs is for like, little kids, maybe teenagers, because whatever, and then just like these people that get saved, and then eventually these younger people, you can kind of move away from Proverbs and go from there. But what's interesting is if you look at five, tying into the same idea, he says, a wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. So now you have this category of people who are both already, quote-unquote, wise and understanding. And it's tied back to verse 2. So this is a person who is, to some extent, already skilled in doing what's right, who is listening for and following God's wisdom. That person also needs the book of Proverbs. Uh, And one quote I found, I thought it was good, just really to the point. He said, if you deliver, or I'm sorry, if you believe you've matured past the need to study Proverbs, then you've essentially just proven how spiritually immature and arrogant you really are. So from the child to the young Christian, all the way to the experienced, quote-unquote, mature believer, Proverbs is necessary for every single one of us as we seek to live a godly life. 
So the decision, and, and you look at this, and it's like right away, the decision of wisdom and folly is laid right in front of us. This book is for those who, who are seeking growth and maturity in their walk with God, who want to grow in their ability to discern between the wisdom way and the foolish way, and desiring to increase the skill in understanding and doing what is right or what pleases God. So it's really important, and you start to feel like, okay, this is a big deal. Like wisdom, it carries a lot of weight, keeps you away from the world, helps you fight your flesh, it helps you see what path you're on. Okay, this wisdom is so critical, but the natural question becomes, like, how do I get it? Like, where do we even begin? And this is where you get to verse 7. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And this is that wisdom, uh, knowledge, skill, and doing what's right word. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, uh, is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, again, noting that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. This is a principle that's actually lit, clearly laid out through Proverbs if you study the whole book, um, but it really pops up all over Scripture. And sometimes the error that people make in saying, "Oh, the fear of the Lord," yeah, that's that reverence and respect for God. But if you study it. Through all of Scripture, you'll find some really important connections to how, if you genuinely have the fear of the Lord, it's not your mouth that says, oh, yeah, I fear the Lord. It's actually your life that will match what is true if it's a reality in your life. So it's not just reverence, but it's tied to many spiritual disciplines and functions within the life of God's people. Uh, so the proper understanding of truth and the accurate application into real life begins with actually a proper view of God and an intimate personal relationship with him. So just to kind of give you this overview of where the fear of the Lord pops up or where there's connections in scripture, if you study Job in the book of Psalms, the fear of the Lord is connected to wisdom manifesting itself by hating and avoiding evil. And it also expresses itself outwardly by worshiping and thanking God. If you study the fear of the Lord in just the book of Proverbs, it tells us that it produces confidence in living and making decisions because there's clarity in the choices that we're making. It also teaches that those who look at the lost or the unredeemed or people who look at the world and envy them do not have the fear of the Lord because if they did, they'd be content with God and content with what he's provided. If you study the book of Isaiah, which actually the fear of the Lord comes up a lot, he's reprimanding Israel over and over throughout his ministry because they didn't have the fear of the Lord, which is actually connected to many, if not all, of their failures as a nation in the Old Testament. You can even jump into the New Testament as well. It's tied to passages like 2 Peter Peter 1, which assumes a deep, personal, intimate knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ if you are going to be growing, learning, and developing as you should. So it's like a practical functioning of the fear of the Lord. Jesus himself in Matthew 26 connects principles of concrete trust and willful submission to God to, uh, within the practice of the fear of the Lord. James 1 commands us to go to God because we lack wisdom and to ensure that our thinking and our attitude towards God is based on who he actually is and not what we may think or feel because of some temporary hardship or temptation. Then you have 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. It reminds us that being able to intelligently defend and explain our faith to others and being able to live with a clean conscience before God are both tied to first 
sanctifying God in our own hearts and minds, which again implies deep, intimate fellowship with our Redeemer. And actually, this is another really important one that I tied in. Acts chapter 9 ties the fear of the Lord into a biblically functioning and growing church. So a church that doesn't properly fear God, and you can see this in Acts 9, a church that doesn't properly fear God will not survive and will not be effective in reaching this world. So I say all of that, and I know it's a lot, but the fear of the Lord is more than just a healthy reverence or respect. Biblically speaking, fearing God as we ought to, it assumes that you've exchanged everything about yourself, your will, your goals, your ambitions, your emotions, your preferences, your ideas, your identity. You've traded everything for God's. Whatever God says, that's what I want. What God wills, that's what I will. It's this idea of going to God and saying, not my will, but yours be done. That God, you have to increase, and so I will decrease. And the practice of biblical wisdom, these are things that we're saying constantly, not just necessarily daily, uh, but even hourly as you face forks in the road, you're consciously giving your heart and your mind to God and doing what's right. So if the fear of the Lord is so critical to living a wisdom-based life, you might wonder how on earth that we're supposed to properly develop it, because it's like the fear of the Lord is this, and you're like, okay, I should really want wisdom, but where do I even start? And what's interesting is chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 actually answer that question. So I'm just going to read that briefly. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline, you lean your ear unto wisdom, you apply your heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest for her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, and what does he say? Then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. It's actually very simple. Look at the choices you've made, and I say in recent weeks or months, regarding your worship of God, your study of Scripture, and your prayers for His guidance and grace every single day. And you have to ask yourself, have you honestly pursued God with passion and consistency? Now, you can ask, okay, well, how do you evaluate that? And, and this is where we're going to tie into this, this connection of not just reverence, but there's an application into the way that we live our lives. So how do we evaluate if I do have or if I am seeking the fear of the Lord? Now, I'm going to give credit to Kenny because I'm 100% stealing one of his points from one of his Jonah messages this week, um, but it was better than the illustration I had. So I took it out and put it in, but I'm just giving credit where it's due because I did steal this from Kenny. Uh, at least this, for, this thought where you have um, Jonah 1.9, right, where Jonah is uh, in the boat, he gets waken up, he's confronted by the sailors, and what does Jonah say in verse 9? Jonah says to the sailors, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. So you look at Jonah, and you're like, oh, he says, right, you say you know God, you say you fear the Lord, but he's in the process of rebelling against God. If, the, if, if Jonah feared God, the question is, why are you on the boat? Right? You say you fear the Lord, and actually you can study the connection to Proverbs. It's, it's, the exact, it's referencing the same thing. If you fear God, Jonah, why are you on the boat? Now, I pull back from that because there's a reality of like, 
let's just be honest, Jonah is really easy to pick on. It's, I fear the Lord. I'm a Hebrew. You're on the boat, dude. Like, you are, you are in the action of rebelling against God, and you're claiming that you love and fear God. But I make a transition here because I think it's important. A lot of times we do this, this exact same thing, right? Oh, I'm a Christian. We'll post it all over social media. I'm a Christian. I love God. I fear the Lord. All this different stuff. But then you have to start asking real questions, not do you fear the Lord, but actually look at your life. If you fear God, then why does your hobby and your me time seem to always take precedence over your family? If you love and fear, reverence God, why do you always seem to have an excuse for God when he convicts you about how lazy you are? Why do we always seem to find a way to minimize the spiritual apathy or arrogance in our own lives, or maybe as parents in our kids' lives, when it's, it's highlighted, but we just kind of glance over it because we don't want to be uncomfortable, right? We say we fear God, but the question is, do your actions match your words? Are we better at making excuses than we are at making time to actually be seeking God the way that we're supposed to in order to develop and attain the biblical wisdom that is necessary to live a life that pleases God? And this actually leads us to our last, our final really critical question, why should I care? Why should I care about having the fear of the Lord? Why should I care if I'm acting or living like a fool? Why should I even care about studying the book of Proverbs? There's really two things here. First, it comes down to understanding what the foolish path really is. It is a selfish pursuit of temporary gain and pleasure that will completely decimate your ability to live a life of peace, joy, and satisfaction, and value. Look at Proverbs 1, verses 10 to 19. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, Come with us, let us lay and wait for blood. Let us lurk privately for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as to the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. For their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, and they lay wait for their own blood. They lurk privately for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain, which taketh away the life of the owners thereof. Just to be clear, the foolish path is sin, which always leads to destruction. And you can study that as well in Psalm 73, not being distracted by the world, but ultimately calling what sin is. The temptation to sin and act foolishly will come quietly, often within our own flesh and our own desires. The world and others may entice you, but ultimately you have to choose to follow after what your flesh or your sin nature wants. It may look good, it may taste good, it may feel good, but you must call sin, you must call temptation what it is. It's absolute foolishness. Now, it's interesting that what Solomon writes here about sinners, what it sin says, is so graphic. But the image is important. This is a reminder of what the wise man does or what he hears when temptation comes. Instead of entertaining what pleasure you could get out of sinning or engaging in foolishness, the wise man calls sin what it is in order to recognize, and this is the, the important one, how clear the foolish path is when sin is exposed. 
Remember that wisdom implies skill in recognizing what is right and what is wrong. It calls things what they are and then makes godly Christ-like decisions, regardless of how difficult or uncomfortable it is. So developing the fear of the Lord helps you to see sin the way God does. It's filthy, it's despicable, and it's never worth indulging in. Sin always leads to pain, loss, loneliness, and ultimately destruction and damnation. The path of the fools may manifest itself in different ways, which we'll look at in other sermons, whether it's laziness, arrogance, apathy, making excuses, or even just avoiding responsibility. But understand that foolishness is always rooted in indulging some selfish desire, which is always going to root back to our sin nature. So that's the first. It comes down basically to calling the foolish path what it is. It's sin, and it's going to lead to destruction. But secondly, this is an important one as well, recognize that God has made wisdom both available and, generally speaking, quite easy to gain. You look at Proverbs 1, 20 to 33, and you find wisdom personified as a woman. She's out in the street. She's calling out through the city for anyone to listen. So while foolishness and sin, it tries to pull you away and isolate you, this privately, this secret sort of darkness creepy weirdo trying to pull you away from everything. Now you have wisdom is in the open. She's available and really available to anyone who's humble enough to pay attention. It's actually tied to Romans 1 and 2 that God has revealed himself to everyone in some way. It's actually a similar um, principle there in Romans. But looking at this, uh, just look at verses 24 um, to 29. This is wisdom speaking. She says, because I have called and ye have refused... I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have said it not all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge, and note this, they did not choose what? The fear of the Lord. The fool rejects the fear of the Lord. So, and this is where I'm going to tie it back to Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. Like the man in Robert Frost's poem, the one who chooses to walk in their own way and reject wisdom, to reject God, to reject what he has offered, regret will come and your lack of humility and discernment will mock you. The path of the fool may have pleasure for a season, but ultimately fools are haunted by regret, looking back at decisions made and are mocked by their own lack of humility and wisdom. So why, going back to this question, why should you care? Why should you care about which path you're on? Uh, This is Proverbs 17, 12. It says, let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool and it's folly. So I'm just going to clarify this with a question. What is the result of a hiker that runs into a mama bear who thinks that the hiker has done something with her cubs? I just wrote, it's not pretty. (laughs) A hiker meets a bear. The bear thinks, you mess with my kids. The result of that situation is gross. But to go into Proverbs 17, 12, let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool and it's folly. The result of that situation, a man getting mauled by a bear, to be clear, that result is better than a man walking arrogantly, 
lethargically, angrily, foolishly through life. Now, what's the alternative? And this is where you have Proverbs 1, 32 and 33. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me to wisdom shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Now, of those two paths, being mauled by a bear or basically confidence, comfort, and safety, which sounds better? Uh, it's, not, it's really not a hard choice, right? Or at least it, it shouldn't be. These statements make it plain and simple, but these are the truths you have to keep locked in your mind as you go through the book of Proverbs and, frankly, as you walk through life every day. As you study Scripture, you have to recall these foundational principles of both paths because when you come to a principle or a teaching that addresses your anger, your lust, your greed, your laziness, your emotionalism, your pride, when Scripture, again, addresses anything, you have to be motivated to address it in that area that you are walking the path of the fool, which, to clarify again, is worse than being attacked by a bear. When the Holy Spirit uses any passage of Scripture to confront an area of need or growth in your life, in that moment, you're basically confronted with this clear choice. Will you be wise and make the right decision or be a fool and continue in your foolishness? And as we kind of move into this, really ultimately in closing, um, I just want to, because I know it's like a lot, but leave you with really two things. Um, One is just a reminder, and actually the other one is a challenge I want to leave you with. The first is, since wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, I want to challenge and encourage you to honestly evaluate the decisions that you've made regarding, you know, you say worship and prayer, but even just personal Bible study in recent weeks. Instead of making excuses for what hasn't been done, start intentionally building an executable plan that keeps you faithful to God's house, devoted to God's word, and constantly seeking God's guidance through prayer. Uh, and even just something that I listened to a podcast that they were, he was talking about prayer and he just said, you have a smartphone, just set reminders on your phone. That was actually one of the challenges Kenny gave the kids, to, you know, this model of praying five times a day. Do something to make sure that you are constantly in prayer and communication with God. So that's the first thing. And actually, the second thing, I want to actually give you a challenge or something to implement in whatever Bible study you're already doing. I want to challenge you to make Proverbs a part of your daily reading routine. Because Proverbs is laid out so simply and so practically, taking time to read through it every month uh, and every day could actually be a great help to you no matter what, or really no matter where you are in your Christian life. So to give you this model, it's very simple, okay? Proverbs has 31 chapters, and you're never going to have more than 31 days in a, in a month. I almost said year. That's, that's not what it is. Uh, 30, you're never going to have more than 31 days in a month. So whatever the date is, you read that proverb. So today is the 16th. You would read Proverbs 16. Now, I do add, this is in addition to whatever other studying you're doing, it's not the five minutes a day keeps the devil away, right? You, you need to be digging into Scripture. You need to be studying and reading, finding, you know, obviously understanding God's Word. But I'm saying in addition to your studying, implement reading Proverbs every day. 
whatever the date is, reading that proverb. And actually, if you look at Proverbs, there's an average of 30 verses per chapter. The most is 36, but pretty much every chapter is right just over or just under 30 verses. And I just did some timing on one of the longer chapters, and it literally takes less than five minutes. Actually, to read one of the longest chapters took me about three minutes, and I'm a pretty slow reader. Um, But I add it's in addition to what you're doing, but whether you know, let's say you do your big study, quote unquote, in the morning. Well, at night, maybe take five minutes to read the proverb of that day. And I just use that as a simple application point, keeping these simple God-inspired statements of wisdom and folly in front of you daily can play a huge role in being able to see manifestations of foolishness in your own life that might be hindering growth or preventing you from truly developing the fear of the Lord as is necessary for living wisely. So uh, really, I just want to close with one passage, and then we'll close in prayer. Um, But I think that Proverbs 3, it's 5 through 8, and then 11 through 13, that it just gives a good summary of what we've talked about and kind of closes us out on this idea of the fear of the Lord and wisdom and how it manifests. So Proverbs 3, starting in verse 5, it says, "'Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not into thine own understanding.'" In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord, and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel, and marrow to thy bones. Look at verse 11. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding.